If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read a large chunk of Scripture, and we're going to skip, a, skip some as we go, but we'll try to grab all of the context as well, at least parenthetically and sort of uh, summarize, in summarization at least. Matthew 26, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, I'm sorry, uh, say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written in in Zechariah, I I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, "Though, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, undaunted, said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Skip down to verse 47. This is where we left off last week. They were, before that, he's in Gethsemane, he's praying, he surrendered to Father God. He told the, the, the inner three, Peter, James, and John, let's get up, let's go. My betrayer's at hand, and sure enough, verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. When you gather together all the people that were at the, in the temple precinct, the chief priest would incorporate the chief priest, the, uh, the, the guards, the captain of the guard, the treasurer. Uh, some expositors think as many as a thousand people showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there were a lot of people here. And they're, they're, they look like a, it's a mob scene. Verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. We know this was Peter because John tells us that writing some 30 years later. And struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. You can be sure Peter was going for his head. He wasn't even very good at that. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in in your place. 
For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions? That's 72,000 angels. Second Kings tells us that one angel killed 185,000 men. So just imagine what Jesus is referring to here. That I can call 12 legions of angels, but how then should the scripture be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, you've come out as against a robber with swords, clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You, you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered in the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see Peter, that is, I'm sorry, and Peter following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And then skip down to verse 69 where it says, Now Peter was sitting, this is while Jesus is being interrogated, outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to him, uh, said to the bystanders, this, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse upon himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered The saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I'm going to add just a couple more verses in the 27th chapter, verses 3 and 4. It says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See it, see it yourself, see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Any study of the passion of Jesus, this account will reveal that More than one person was on trial. As Jesus faced his persecutors and shined, his disciples were dealing with their own trials and they were losing badly. In fact, after predicting one of them would be a betrayer, He promptly announced to them, we saw that, that all of them would flee. They would all fall away on that night. Verses 31 and, and of course, verse 56 says that's exactly what happened. They all bugged out. There's no way to imagine when Jesus announced to his disciples that they would all fall and one would betray and Peter would deny. There's no way to 
capture the psychological struggles that were going on in their hearts and minds. But whatever it was, Peter broke the ice with his loud, confident boast. You know, I don't know what these bozos are going to do, but you can count on me. You can mark that under famous last words. In fairness, they all joined Peter. We saw that in verse 56. But I'm sorry, verse 35, where they declare their loyalty just before they ran. But Peter would take it a step further, a lot further. And Judas would not take a step. He would take a plunge, literally, that would end up in the abyss. The subplots to this passion account are fascinating. They're very intriguing. You have fearful disciples. You have murderous religious leaders. You have Pilate who who turns out to be a sort of a mixed bag of fear and power monger and a wimp at the same time. And you have Peter and Judas and Satan who is both behind and within so much of the evil that goes on here. In particular, in the lives of Peter and Judas, who really are a tale of two men. And while Jesus is the focus of the Passion account, there's no question, there's absolutely no question, but that God would have us look at these, the character of these two men, who not only stand in stark contrast to our Savior, but... In the end, they stand in contrast to one another, though their sins are remarkably similar. In some ways, the trials of Peter and Judas are the trials of us. In both cases, and in ours, it all boils down to the way in which we respond to Jesus. So a couple of insights as we go, actually about five of them I want to give you this morning as we look at Peter and Judas, in contrast to Jesus, of course. And there's some strong warnings here. I'm going to just warn you ahead of time. First, and just just from the cursory reading of this, both both Peter and Judas were directly impacted by Satan. Peter was a follower of Jesus. Judas was not. Remember we saw last week, Jesus, very, in his very careful wording, said weeks earlier, if not months, he said, he said, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones. Remember that? Very careful in his wording. Because Peter, or rather Judas had not followed, not in his heart anyway, Jesus. To put it differently, Peter was an internal follower of Jesus. Judas was an external follower follower of Jesus. Theologians and expositors debate the extent of demon activity in the life of Christians. We're all very interested in that. But almost none debate the possibility of demon activity in the life of a believer. That's the reason why you have 1 Peter 5, James 4, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He'll flee. Why would we be told to resist the devil unless 
there is a real possibility of his influence in your life and in mine. The very notion that demonic activity is restricted to the lost is absolutely as far as it can be from the truth. Here's the second thing. Satan indwelled Judas. This is about as eerie as it gets. And and, and so doing, he literally indwelt Judas for the duration of the betrayal. We know what Judas did. It's amazing what he knew. Think about this. He hung out with Jesus for three years. Three years. He ate with Jesus. He slept with Jesus. He went where Jesus went. He copied what Jesus copied. He did miracles. There's nothing in the account to tell us that he wasn't a part of the group that went out doing miracles and proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand. Witnessing Jesus' life, his impeccable life, his sinless life, his truthful words. And yet in John chapter 13 and verse 27, in the midst of of the, the, the Last Supper, the Bible says, at the moment that Jesus, at the very moment that Jesus dipped the bread in the sop and handed it to Judas, you have these words, Satan entered him. I wrote as a footnote in my Bible several years ago, in this most dastardly of all crimes, it was not enough that Judas be demon-possessed. He had to be Satan-possessed. Almost as if Satan was not going to allow this thing to be screwed up. Eerie. In fact, John 13 and verse 2 tells us that at the beginning, Satan of the betrayal, Satan had actually placed it into his heart to betray Jesus. But at communion, he actually entered him. Did you catch what I just said? At the time of communion is when Satan entered Judas. Think about that the next time you celebrate the Lord's table. Think about the seriousness of that moment of fellowship. And Jesus makes this incredible statement in verse 24. Look at it again. The Son of Man goes as as is written, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Think about this. Better not to be born than never to be born again. I know that's a strong statement, but that's a true statement. Isn't it true of all of us? If Jesus would say of Satan, it would be, I'm sorry, of Jesus, it would be better for that man never to have been born than it's true of everyone who refuses to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Better not to be born than not to ever be born again. And tweet that. Listen, friend, the odds of Satan indwelling you 
if you refuse to believe in Jesus, are slim to none. But the odds of Satan being with you forever are virtually 100%. But Satan's activity during this passion was not simply in Judas's life. It was in Peter's life. Satan was behind Peter who blatantly and repeatedly denied Jesus even after Jesus had warned him what was happening behind the scenes. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus looked right at Peter and said, Satan is asking for you to, be, to sift you. In fact, he says to him in Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon. And every time Jesus talked to Peter and called him Simon, which was his earthly name, things were not going well in Peter's life. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you. We get our English word sieve from this Greek word. He's sifting. He's sifting you. Now, he actually gives Peter a word of encouragement in that very same context about being restored, but that's probably the only thing Peter heard. What? Me? I'm the most loyal guy you got, Jesus. It wasn't the first time. Remember, right after Peter just ascended to the heights when you know, the one day Jesus had all of his disciples together and he said, you know, who, who do uh, people say that I am? And they were going through a you know, plethora of prophets, you know, Jeremiah, Elijah, you know, one of the other prophets. And Yeah, but who, who do you think I am? And Peter just, you know, always the one to jump to the guns. Hey, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that you're blessed are you, Peter, Simon, Barjona, Peter. You didn't come up with that on your own. My father gave that to you. And, you know, Peter just, you know, he's feeling pretty good about himself. Because Jesus specifically identified him. And then Jesus said, you know, after this, I'm gonna, the Son of Man's going to go. He's going to be, um, you know, be betrayed. He's going to hang on a cross. Peter said, oh, no, not you, Jesus. At which Jesus, I mean, this is in the same time frame. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. How would you like to have somebody say that to you? Identifying the source behind your comment. So, Satan was behind Peter in his blatant denials. And I take it that he did so by influencing and, and fueling Peter's weaknesses. In the upper room, later on in Gethsemane in the garden, and throughout the first trial of Caiaphas. Where he stood you know, behind but yet within sight. For what it's worth... Satan's influence on those who know Jesus, and that would be a number of you, seems to be in the realm, listen, to, listen very carefully what I'm saying to you here. Satan's influence on those who know Jesus seems to be in the realm of pride and attempting spiritual things in the flesh. Mark it down. Because everything's coming out of Peter's mouth sounds pretty good, don't you think? I'm with you. 
I mean, even if you could just, if you didn't even know the story, but just sort of heard about it and you could just jump into the drama in the, in the, in the garden. You see this mob coming out. They got clubs. They got swords. They got lanterns. They're coming after Jesus. There's a, up to a thousand of them. And here comes Peter taking his sword out of his scabbard, you know, and whoosh, takes the ear off the dude. You're, you know, if that's the first scene you see, you might think, he's a pretty cool guy. Protecting his master. But it wasn't cool to Jesus, and in, you, if you know the story, and we just read it, Jesus rebukes him because it was all of Peter and not of God. As someone said, Peter boasted too loudly, prayed too little, and slept too much, and acted too fast. Why? Because he operated in the flesh, that's why. By doing so, he invited, and you invite, evil into your life. On his way to the garden, and even while there, he illustrates that fleshly boasts and actions are pitiful replacements for a spirit-led man. I'll never fail you. I'll never deny you. But he did both. Because he was a man who operated in a spiritual realm in a fleshly way. A scary place to be. Here's the fourth thing I want you to note. Both Peter and Judas were around Jesus, but only Peter was in him. Judas alone, with the listen, this is very interesting. Judas alone, with the exception of Thomas, at a low moment in his life, remember Thomas, you know, wouldn't believe that you know Jesus was alive. But repeatedly, in every one of the gospel writers identify Judas this way. Every single one of them identify him as, quote, one of the 12. You don't see that in any of the other, any of the other disciples except that one fleeting moment in Thomas's life. In fact, you see it in verse 14, you see it in verse 27. Judas, one of the 12. Very interesting. There almost seems to be a particular stress in the gospel writers to point out that he was among the followers of Christ, but never truly a follower, which probably distinguishes and defines some of you. By any study of his life, by any study of the life of Judas, he perfectly blends in with the group. Right up to parting, his parting at the Last Supper. If you read John's Gospel, None of the other 11 suspected in any way that Judas was up to anything diabolical. They just figured, well, he's got the money. He must be going out to help somebody. Think about this. He was their bean counter. He was their treasurer. He was their money guy. They utterly and completely trusted him. And yet he was a demon-possessed man. There might have been a hint if they had paid attention. And if you got an ESV study Bible, there's a really good footnote there. And they point out, and rightly so, that, that around the table, look at verse 22. We just read it, but verse 22 says, you know, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, what? Curios, is it I, Lord? But when Judas speaks up, he says, is it I, 
Rabbi, did you know that Judas never, ever called Jesus Lord? He never called him Lord. Now, you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he calls him rabbi, but it was a term of respect. He was trying to figure out if he was Lord and he would soon find out that he was and believe in him. But there's no record of Judas ever, ever, ever bowing to Jesus as Lord. I've heard of men rightly criticized for preaching shallow messages and only talking about how to be saved. Only giving the gospel and not the whole counsel of God. And they, they are rightly to be criticized for that. But nobody would, would fault me for giving the gospel in a church our size every time I preach, right? But let me tell you something. I'd preach the gospel here if there were only ten of you and eight of you were my kids. The plain fact is that some of you are like Judas. You are among the group, but you're not in the kingdom. You like the friendships. You like the community. Everybody likes community. Sometime you got to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You got to be where you can see the troubles are they're all the same. You got to go where everybody knows your name. What is that if it's not community? As we my wife and I bugged out of town here earlier this week to uh, fly to New Jersey and surprise our family pastor and his wife as they held vigil over their critical daughter and uh, she left, not just physically, but spiritually, a few years ago and broke the hearts of her parents and many who knew her and actually claimed atheism. And uh, so when we got there, we weren't sure what to expect, but one after another, the community arrived. Friends, several friends Individuals that she hangs out with. And guess what? They didn't have horns coming out of their heads. They were some of the nicest people I've ever met. They came bearing gifts, food items, doing whatever they could do for Kevin and Jeannie. Just as kind as they, full of compassion. Seriously, full of compassion. Now, they're hopeless without Jesus, as is everybody without Jesus. Amen? But they were definitely a community. We all need community. Everybody needs community. Churches, even Sailorville Church. We love to offer it in order to build trust and and uh, relationships to speak truth. We understand the power and the delight of relationships. But community will not save you. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save you. And that's only if you bow your heart to him. You like the idea of 
community. You like the idea of helping the less fortunate, perhaps. You like the idea of belonging. Everybody wants to belong. But in your heart, you don't like the idea of lordship. God having a claim, not just over your soul, but your very life. Frankly, you like the idea of running your own life, making your own decisions, calling your own shots, and deciding for yourself whether or not you'll accept this. Or, you know, I mean, yeah, I like the Bible, but, you know, some parts are kind of, you know, not sure I want to do that. Not sure I want to submit to that. You like Jesus as a teacher. You like him as a rabbi. Not as your Lord. That's Judas. And what will eventually happen is you'll join the ranks of those John talked about in 1 John 2 when he said that they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained or they would have continued with us. But they went out. Why? Here's why they went out. That it might be made manifest, clear, that they were not of us. Here's the last thing I want to say about these two guys. Both Peter and Judas deeply regretted But only Peter repented. They both felt awful. Both of them miserably failed Jesus. Both regretted, only one repented. One went out and hung himself, which is what guilt-ridden, unforgiven, don't know where to turn with my sin kind of people will do. The other went out and wept bitterly, broken contrite and truly repentant. The one cemented his destiny in hell. The other was eventually restored to fellowship with Jesus. I love to jump ahead to the resurrection account, Mark's gospel, where Jesus appears to disciples and he says to the ladies, hey, go and tell the disciples. I'll meet him and, and tell Peter. The one has a name that will forever be associated with evil. You don't name your kids Judas. The other, notwithstanding his failure, will forever be thought of as the first among the disciples and bold, unashamed proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The difference? One loved Jesus. The other didn't. That's pretty simple. That's pretty much what it boils down to. One of them truly loved Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. And he was eventually proven. Remember that? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Not like you want me to, but I love you. He did love him. And Judas didn't. It's just that simple. I'd like all of you to just take those cards that you have in your bulletin or in front of you. And I want you to think about these things as as we close up.
this morning. And before we take up uh, an offering, I want you to think, there's four things I want to share with you. And they're statements, so I just, and, but there's going to be questions that come out of these statements. Here they are. The demonic world is energized by fleshly-driven Christians. That's a heavy thought, isn't it? The demonic world is energized by fleshly-driven Christians. This is a great concern of mine. I don't want to be a fleshly-driven man. I don't want you to be a fleshly-driven people. The question is, what is driving you? If God himself is driving you, then you will accept truth. You will submit to authority. You will strive towards unity. You will confess sin. You will humble yourself. Here's a second a second thought. And really, what you need to be thinking of is, what is driving you? What is driving you? You can be asking yourself that question. Here's the second thought. Being in the community does not mean you're in Christ. This is something it seems like we have to battle with all the time. Well, I'm a part of Sailorville Church. That does not make you a part of God's family. Trusting Jesus does that. The, the question is, is not what do I belong to, but whom do I belong to? G- Judas belonged to the group, but he didn't belong to Jesus, did he? So, whom do you belong to? That's the question. Here's a third thing. There's always restoration for the redeemed. If you truly love Jesus. There's always restoration for the redeemed, if you love Jesus. So the question that comes out of this is, have you failed Jesus with your lips, with your life? And do you feel like Peter, awful about it? And will you humble yourself before God like Peter did? Seek forgiveness and restoration. And lastly, it's a huge misconception, but it's important to point out that Jesus is not Savior then Lord. He is Savior and Lord. You don't get to piecemeal Jesus. This business of, well, he's my Savior, but I haven't made him my Lord makes no sense. That's why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Remember the disciples? They all identify with Jesus. They called him Lord, not not Judas. Both Peter and Judas looked into the face of Jesus before he died. Think about this. Both of them looked into the face of Jesus before he died. For Judas, he looked him right in the face. Just before he kissed him, he kissed him. 
Did you know that Psalm 2 says that was supposed to be a symbol of trust and belief in Jesus? Kiss the son, it says. That's exactly what Judas did. He kissed him. The very thing that was meant to depict trust and love and affection, Judas did with a cold, hard heart. Last time he ever saw him. And Peter, on his third denial, according to Luke, we do have a picture. I said you'd not, go ahead and put it up if you can find it. On his third denial, remember, this is the this. Jesus turns, it says, and looked at him. That was the last time Peter saw Jesus before he died. The look for Peter brought repentance. For Judas, damnation. So the question I have is, in your heart, is Jesus just Savior? Or is he Savior and Lord? Because that's what he is. Savior and Lord. My guess is that most of us can probably relate to Peter. Amen? And as we continue to think about this passion account, put yourself in the shoes of Judas and Peter and ask yourself if you can relate to either one of them. If you relate to Judas, repent and be saved. If you relate to Peter, repent and be restored. Either way, you need to repent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and these characters that are so contrastive to our perfect Lord Jesus during his trial. But the, but the trials of Judas and Peter are really a reflection of the trial of us. I pray for those here, Lord, who have rejected Jesus Christ, who, like Judas, have played the game, have operated entirely in themselves and not of you. They don't know you. If that's you and you would say, I don't want to live apart from Jesus anymore. I have played this game long enough. I'm, I have fooled everybody but you, God. If that's you, and your heart would say, I want my sins to be forgiven. Would you just humble your heart to God? Believe that Jesus is God and He came to this earth and died for you, rose again. Would you believe that with all of your heart? That he is Savior and Lord. And if you're really relating to Peter today because of some miserable failure in your life, some of you have just done some just bozo things, sinfully, and you're sorry, and you're broken, and God sees your heart, so don't worry about that. He sees your motivations. He sees everything about you, so just acknowledge that for him, to him. And maybe 
you're not really guilty of anything just terrible. It's just, you've just been operating in the flesh. Everything you do, even spiritual things, are just pretty much according to your way and not God's. Well, that's an eerie thing because you're inviting demonic activity if that be the case. Would you ask for forgiveness and seek to truly walk with God? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.